We'll read from Ephesians chapter 4, and our text will be verses 25 to 32, the last section of Ephesians 4. And so the book of Ephesians, it, the first three chapters, well, the, the, the entire book of Ephesians talks about how God is recreating a new humanity, a new human family. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul will explain how God, specifically how Jesus Christ, has formed this new family. And then in the final three chapters of Ephesians, where our text is, Paul will talk about how this new family is supposed to function, to live together, and to grow. So why don't we read Ephesians 4, starting at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you who were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does he mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's now respond and we'll sing from Psalm 4, verses 1 to 3. And so Psalm 4 is actually quoted um, in one of the verses in our text, be angry and do not sin, if I'm remembering correctly. So Psalm 4, verses 1 and 3.
dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Jesus doing in your life? How has Jesus been working in your heart? How has he been building you up? How has he been reshaping who you are? What has he been cutting away? What issues in your life is he working on? Today you'll be voting for elders, and these are great questions that they can ask on home visits. These are great questions to think about as leaders, as a congregation, as families, and as friends in the faith. What sins and issues does our Lord want us to get rid of? And what sorts of virtues, what sorts of righteousness does God want to work in us? You see, after forgiving his people through his own blood and sacrifice, Christ wants to work in them. He wants to build them up. And in verse 25 to 32 of our text this afternoon, Paul goes into detail about what, how the body of Christ grows into Christ-likeness. And Paul gives five areas, five areas in our ordinary life that the church and our members can put off sin and then also put on righteousness. And in each of these five areas, he gives a Christ-centered reason and motivation for doing this, a purpose for living this kind of life. It's not a legalistic reason. It's not do this to earn God's love. Neither is it a moralistic or a self-improvement kind of reason. Do this to make yourself a better person. But rather, Paul gives us a gospel, a Christian reason. And with these five areas, we can organize them into three different areas. Subjects, matters concerning our heart, that's the first point, and then our tongue and also our hands. And so the theme for this morning is that Christ calls his body to grow in the unity of the Spirit by putting on a new heart, a new tongue, and a new hand. And I considered having a theme that goes more like Christ works in us, builds us up, so that we have a new heart a new tongue and a new hand. But with sanctification, with how Christ works in us in this life, It's not only 100% God's work in us, but it's also 100% us working it out as well. And so in verse 26 to 27, as well as verses 31 to 32, we see how our hearts, our inner dispositions, our temperaments, moods, feelings, our attitudes, how they need to be transformed. We are told in verse 26 to 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. As we just sang, Paul is quoting here from Psalm 4. Psalm 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Put your trust in the Lord. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's Psalm 4 which Paul quotes. 
But is Paul here commanding us to be angry? Be angry. Is that what he's saying? Well, there's two different ways that we could understand this. Perhaps Paul is talking about having a, a righteous anger. You know, have a righteous anger. That's sort of how Paul addresses the church in 1 Corinthians. He's angry that they're tolerating the sin among them. But like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, don't be too severe. Have righteous anger, but don't be too severe. Turn and forgive them. Restore and comfort the sinner who has betrayed you. Don't be angry against someone forever, but restore them in the Lord. Now, that's, that's the first way to understand this. The second way to understand this is that Paul is telling the church, you know, don't be angry. He's saying, he's sort of giving a concession. If you do end up becoming angry, put it off. But whatever way we go, regardless of it, Paul is telling the church to put off anger. He's telling us how to deal with our anger, no matter what kind of anger. Just as James says, be slow to anger, Paul here says, be quick to get over your anger. Be slow to anger, but if you do get angry, be quick to get over it. You see, the concern of our Lord in this passage is that after we have been adopted into the family of God, we would begin to get angry at this new family, our new brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul himself had to deal with difficulties with fellow believers. Perhaps you know the story about Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. They had a sharp disagreement about who was to come on this new missionary journey. And it's likely that Paul and Barnabas probably had some hard feelings towards each other. They were, their emotions were getting stirred up against one another, perhaps even angry. What exactly is the danger of anger? One man said that anger is perhaps the most destructive emotion in the entire world, the most destructive feeling in the world. If we don't deal with it, it will burn in us forever. It'll burn a hole right through your soul. And I'm sure you've felt some of that self-destructing rage and power of anger. And it's why the devil loves to incite believers to anger. Once a believer is angry, satanic powers are quickly there to, to stoke the embers of dislike. And then he's there there with a, fa a fan to, to bring up those flames, let it rises into a forest fire of rage, a wildfire of malice and cruelty even, too large for us to even put out anymore. Right? These walls of anger can divide brothers and sisters in the church. They can divide entire churches and federations. As the hymn says, the body of Christ is by schisms rent asunder. The damage done by anger between believers can seem irreconcilable at times. The devil and his demonic powers love nothing more than to hurt and to attack Jesus Christ. We see this in, his, in the Gospels throughout. But now that Christ is in heaven, they attack you, his body. They try to break up, they try to divide and hurt our Lord's one body. They hate that Christ has saved you and saved you from the clutches of his hands. 
This is why verse 27 says there at the end, give no opportunity to who? To the devil. When you give in to anger, you're playing into the hands of those who hate not just you, but your Savior. So why help? Why help your enemy attack your ally, your friend? Why help them attack your very own body? Instead, we are called to put out the flaming arrows of Satan as soon as that anger hits you. As soon as it hits you, you put it out. But how do we do this? How do we put out anger? Well, look at the end of verse 26. The end of verse 26 reads, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Right? This is very similar to what we read in Psalm 4. Psalm 4 says, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. The sun goes down at bedtime when we go to sleep. And so this has to be part of our spiritual discipline, your spiritual warfare. Do not go to sleep with unresolved anger. I remember being told at school one time to study right before you go to bed. And the reason was that your mind, when you fall asleep, processes, organizes, and solidifies whatever you were just studying. Whatever you did right before bed would become especially imprinted in your mind. And isn't this what Paul and Psalm 4 are talking about? If you go to sleep angry, your anger will only grow. It will become imprinted, etched, carved into your heart. Your attitude, your disposition to that person you're angry at will only become more entrenched, more rooted. And so as a student examines a textbook before going to bed, open the textbook of your heart before the Lord. Open the textbook of your heart. And there's four ways or four steps to doing this. You first have to recognize, confess, attack, and bless. Recognize, confess, attack, and bless. So first, recognize. You have to be honest with yourself and God about your feelings, your attitudes toward the brother or sister. And then you need to confess your anger. You have to confess your sins. And then you have to attack. You have to actually pray against those feelings. Even though they might seem part of who you are, you have to pray against them condemn them, and attack them with your prayer. And finally, you have to bless. You have to bless by praying for spiritual blessings upon that person that you are struggling to love. And it's only in this way, as Psalm 4.8 ends, that you can fall asleep in peace. You can have peace with Christ and also peace with Christ's one body. And then in verses 31 to 32, we also read about having a new heart. If you turn there, verses 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
in this passage here, we see that it's not enough to just, okay, set aside my anger. We need more than that. We need to replace our anger, replace it with, with kindness, with, with love. Instead of a hard heart that's indifferent or tolerate, tolerates other people in church, right? You might have people that, well, yeah, I'll tolerate them. I'll get along with them. You know, they can have their space. I'll have my space. You know, that's not what the gospel calls us to. Rather, we are called to cultivate a tender heart, feelings of compassion, of love towards those people, toward those people. And the renewed heart of a Christian is also a forgiving heart, a forgiving heart. As Jesus says in Luke 17, verses 3 to 4, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you in repentance seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so if your sister has, and the Lord has wronged you, but she turns from it and repents, Christ here calls you to forgive. Christ grows his body by the putting off, by the putting on of this new, tender, kind, and forgiving heart. Now, admittedly, this can be quite difficult to do, isn't it? It's very difficult for our hearts to forgive, to be tenderhearted, to have feelings of compassion for another. But the motivation the Spirit gives us is that reminder in verse 32. Verse 32, God in Christ forgave you. The only reason that we can live in this newfound way, the only way we can get this new kind of, kind of heart is by knowing the tender heart of God toward us. The kindness of our Lord and the forgiveness in Christ. Your sins were mountainous before God. They were unending. Yet in Christ, every single one of them has been dealt with and forgiven through Christ. And we see also the cost of that love, don't we? That forgiving love. Right? It cost Christ so much. He had to suffer. He died. And so it puts the debts that others owe us in perspective. Right? We too are sinners like them. Moreover, Christ has forgiven them, has loved and forgiven them. And we are with them in Christ, forgiven. And so if Christ has loved and forgiven your brother or sister, then by faith, we too can follow Christ in His kindness, in His forgiveness. It's not always easy to be kind and forgiving. It's a lot easier to give in to anger, isn't it? There's a certain kind of sinful pleasure in it. But before bed, before you fall asleep, our Lord wants His body to come to Him with our broken hearts, with our bitter dispositions, with our cruelty. And He wants us to meditate on His love, His work for us. 
He wants that reality, the reality of Christ's gospel, to drive out the anger and to heal our hearts, to make us tender-hearted. Now, in Matthew 12, Jesus teaches that out of the heart, the mouth, fill in the blank, you know it, speaks. So with the new heart, we also need a new tongue. We grow in the unity of the Spirit by putting on a new tongue. And we see this in verse 25. Look with me there, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul here is quoting from another Old Testament quote uh, from Zechariah 8, verses 15 to 17. And I'll read that for you. Paul's quoting, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments. Oh, sorry, I missed a section. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and that make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for these things I hate, declares the Lord. We are to put away falsehood, lying, deception. These things, what do they do? They cause strife, disunity in churches, in communities. And the Christian community has to cut out this kind of tongue because it belongs to the old person the old person that has died with Christ. Lies and falsehood make no sense in the new community, the new humanity. Rather, instead, we are to speak the truth with one another. And as Zachariah says, this truth does the opposite of lies, right? Lies destruct, but truth, what does truth do? It makes for peace and it makes for unity. And in Ephesians, this theme of truth is everywhere. For instance, Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.21, which we read, the truth is in Jesus. If we are in Jesus, we belong to the truth. To tell lies, instead, is a betrayal of who Christ has made us to be. It's betraying the values, the principles of your family. It's betraying your very last name. And central to all truth is this gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's redemptive plan. And this truth is what builds up the body of Christ. Faith in the gospel brings people into the body, but it is also the gospel of Jesus that also now builds up that body. And the Holy Spirit tells us to speak truth to those in the church because, verse 25, we are members one of another. Speak truth because we are members one of another. Paul's using a fascinating metaphor that we can often just you know, glance over because we've heard it so many times. Yeah, we're one body. We're members one of another. And we can just you know, nod our heads to that because we've heard it so often. But children, I heard this silly story where one time a person's eyes, a person's eyes, they really didn't like 
their feet. They really didn't like their feet. They said, we're not members with Mr. Feet. And so as the body, the story goes, as the body is walking on, let's say, the Chilwak Mountain, as the body is walking, the eyes, they lie. They tell mistruths, untruths. And they don't tell Mr. Feet that the edge of the cliff is quickly approaching. And then whoosh! The feet step into the open air and come crashing down into the ground. Well, what's going to happen? Well, the whole body goes tumbling off, following the feet. And what happens to the eyes? Well, children, the eyes, what do they become? They become jelly, smushed. The eyes didn't realize that while they may be different parts, they are still one with the body, with those feet. And so when we lie to each other, we're only actually hurting ourselves. But we can be like those eyes, can't we? We're one with believers. And we know a believer, a brother or sister is approaching a cliff of sin. But we don't speak the truth. We don't even pray for them. Perhaps it's a young person who is growing in drunkenness and partying instead of growing in the spirit. We talk about them, but we don't do anything for them. Or perhaps we speak lies by gossiping about someone else. We harm a brother or sister in the church with our words. Every time their name comes up in a conversation, we have to say, just feel like we have to say something negative about them, taint their name. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in these suboptimal relationships, relations in the church, because we are not realizing the fullness of the gospel. We aren't fully believing in what Jesus has done by his blood, by his spirit, making us one body. Brothers and sisters, may we repent of this kind of sin. May we repent of our shortcomings in this matter. Let's return to the truth of the gospel, that we are members one of another, not because of who we are, but by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. We need to trust this new reality, even when we struggle to see it when we look around. We have to live in this reality by speaking the truth with one another. In verses 29 to 30, what do they do? They build on this. Verses 29 to 30, we also read about having a new tongue. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As disciples of Christ, we must put off corrupting talk. But what, but what kind of words are corrupting? 
Well, we can think of any kind of swearing or cussing or blasphemy, crude or lewd joking. We can also think about corrupting talk as, you know, that one guy on the job site that's always complaining, right? His words, they corrupt, they affect the whole crew. And you feel that everyone would be a lot happier if they just close their mouth. Right, we could think about corrupting talk as anything we wouldn't want our three-year-old to hear, let alone to say. But it's not enough to just, you know, put that off. It's not enough to just, okay, be quiet. I'm never going to speak again. I'm going to stop swearing, blaspheming, complaining all the time. Rather, the Spirit calls us to use our tongues now in order to build up the members of the church. And the reason for this is found in verse 29. The reason is that it may give grace to those who hear. Jesus Christ, how does he speak? Jesus Christ speaks grace to us in the gospel. It's his word of grace that is what? Done for you? It has given you eternal life. Jesus uses us now also to multiply his upbuilding words for the benefit of his church. And so we are called to imitate our Lord by speaking grace to others. We can ask ourselves, will this corrupt others or will this ultimately build them up, give grace? You could tell how thankful you are for the gospel by reflecting on how grace-filled your words are. You can know how thankful you are for the gospel by thinking about and seeing how thank or grace-filled your words are. Reflect on that together when you go home. I was humbled when thinking about it myself. How we answer these questions reveals just how thankful we are to Christ for his love and grace. Is our speech giving grace to those we talk with? And in verse 30, we get another reason to have a new tongue. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to build up the church. In Ephesians 2, verse 22, we read, In Him, that is in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And how are you being built up? It's by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one building us up. And so when we corrupt the body with our speech, we are working against the Holy Spirit. And it grieves Him to see this. Like it grieves a parent trying to help a child. You try to help a child, direct them, help them get out of their state of mind, but they completely resist it. And that's how sometimes we grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, knowing that it grieves the Spirit, it motivates us to walk in step with the Spirit, working with Him as He works in us. We want to build with him. We want to build with him rather than against him. 
The Holy Spirit is our seal, brothers and sisters, of salvation. So how could we speak against the person who is bringing us eternal life and joy? How could we grieve the one who is our comforter, as Scripture says? How could we speak lies when the Spirit of truth is in us? So use your mouths, brothers and sisters, in a new way, with a new gospel purpose, to speak the truth of Christ's gospel and to give grace, that all may be strengthened, that all may be comforted. When a brother is struggling with sin, share the promise that in Jesus Christ there is no more condemnation. When a sister is grieving, share the truth that those who mourn shall be comforted. When a friend is going off into sin, call them to repent, to put that sin to death. The time is short, brothers and sisters. So use your words to give grace and to build up the body of Christ. And finally, we are also called to grow in the unity of the Spirit by putting on new hands. This is just verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal. We're not unfamiliar with stealing with corruption, with money laundering, with scandals, with greed, envy, theft. But Paul's probably not addressing the ancient Ephesians because they were robbing banks or, you know, highwaymen taking over caravans. Rather, Paul's probably addressing a a kind of common theft, like servants stealing from their masters. For us, this might be falsifying income and expenditure records. It could be wasting time on the job site. It could be stealing from your boss or a store. And Paul says to leave it behind. But notice that Paul doesn't just say, stop stealing from others and work and be self-sufficient, work for yourself. Neither does Paul say, Work to have it yourself. That's often our idea about work, isn't it? I work for myself. I work so me and my family can have the weekend off, some vacation time, or I can build up our estate, get ourselves ahead. And that's all very good. Paul does say that one who doesn't provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. But that's not what makes the gospel, the Christ-centered view of work, unique. Paul says, work hard to give to those in need. The Christian's estate and a finance planning should have this at heart. We don't work to have, but we work to give. And Paul's not talking about, you know, just giving to your spouse, to your children, or your grandchildren. Paul's saying, work hard so you can share with anyone in need. In context, he's specifically talking about the church. 
supporting the spiritual family, supporting the, the body of Christ's work, uh, ministry of mercy and the ministry of the gospel. And we can think about God, our Lord. Our Lord didn't work on those six days of creation in order just to receive, but he worked in order to give fruit to all men, blessings to all. And think about Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just obey the law to earn himself righteousness. No, he he obeyed the law to earn himself righteousness, a righteousness that he could then give to us. And so as the Father works, so the Son works. And so the Spirit also works now in us. And so we too now work not to receive but to give. Isn't this the heart of the gospel, brothers and sisters? We don't do works to earn our salvation, but we work to give praise and thanks to our Savior. And so this affects our daily work as well. It's not ultimately about trying to get something for ourselves, but about being able to give. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Even those little areas of our lives that we think, okay, maybe God's not you know, that interested in these little nitty-gritty details. But brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us that we are the children of the Father, the body of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, God cares about our entire lives. He wants us to live with Him in holiness in all these areas of our lives, even in the small things. You know, that one minute as you're getting the kids ready, that one minute of your emotions, or the conversation you have, that coffee break, or about your daily work, God cares about those things. Jesus has made us his own by his death, and now he works in us. Indeed, brothers and sisters, he calls us to be like him in our hearts, in our hands, and in our tongues. Amen.